Well, good morning, everybody. Those of you who don't, I'm going to have to compete with that. I asked the guys in the sound booth to turn it off, but wait, maybe. I think we're good. Yeah, so uh, my name's Kirk Parnum. Some of you have known me for a long time. Uh, some of you have never met me. Uh, so I can tell you one thing for sure, I'm very passionate. Um, so when you sit in the front row is dangerous, you may get sprayed. Um, <laughs> the, the second thing is, is the way I teach is interactively. I'm gonna ask questions, I'm gonna ask for responses. Um, I know it's not really comfortable for a lot of people to share, but that's a good thing. Um, the studies have shown that 75% of what you hear, you forget. But when you share and when you talk about it, the process is called inculcation. You inculcate it into you and it sticks with you longer. So that's one of the reasons why I love it. Um, also too, that I found that over the years of I've been doing this, that I get far more than I could ever possibly give, even in my time of preparation and stuff like that. So I'm counting on you guys to interact with me, even if it's just an arm wave or an eye roll, I'll take that. So, um, <clears throat> well, let's pray and then we'll dive in. <clears throat> Jesus, you are supreme. And Lord, you are the culmination of all that we see and all that we are. I pray, Lord, our time together would be fruitful. And Lord, I pray above all else that the words you give me would come straight from your heart to my lips. And Lord, that we would grow closer to you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're reading, uh, last time we were together, I got to stay close to the mic. Last time we were together, we read the entire text of 1 John, written about 85, 89 AD. Not specifically, which is unusual about this epistle, it was not specifically addressed to one church. Um, the assumption is, is that it was specifically written to be circulated among several churches, and that is probably why he didn't do it. He had two specific intents, as well as some other lesser intents. The first intent, the first, his first intent was to clarify what a false teacher is, and they were dealing with a false doctrine called Gnosticism. Anybody familiar with what that is? Go ahead, Blake, give it to me. Like special enlightenment. Special knowledge, right? Special enlightenment. That, that these false teachers were teaching that um, your flesh is inherently evil because it's matter. All matter was evil. All spirit was good. So therefore, it didn't really matter what you did with your body because it was matter. And we all know that that's not the case. He was also pointing out what a true teacher looks like. So when you think of a good biblical teacher... What are some of the things you think of? Very straight from scriptures. Straight from scriptures, okay. What? Anybody? Huh? They're humble. They're humble. Oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Pride is an issue that I have struggled with for a very, very long time, and I'm pretty sure that's one I'm taking home with me. Pray, Lord, it would someday deliver me of that. There's three specific points that are pointed out in 1 John, and the first one is righteousness of life. That a true Bible teacher, a true teacher, a true expositor of the preacher lives what he teaches. Not that he lives in perfection, because we all know that's unattainable. But he lives under, first of all, authority, the authority of God, authority of people that hold him accountable, right? And then he lives a life of repentance, understanding who he is, what he is, moving on. The second thing is that a true teacher is in love with the brethren, is truly in love with what we call this thing we call the church. In Greek, the ecclesia, the gathering of believers. Um, so 
it's really hard to be an excellent Bible expositor and claim that you're living out the truth if you don't have a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then the last thing is, is faith in Jesus and the fact that he is God incarnate, that he is God in the flesh. Those are the qualities of true biblical teachers. The, the scriptures are very clear as to who Jesus is. That's one of the biggest disagreements that we have with both the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Neither one of them believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. I don't know how, when we go to John 1 and 1, and it says the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Pretty hard to confuse that one. There's five points in Gnosticism we need to kind of cover, and then we'll dive into our text. That man's body is matter, and therefore it is automatically evil, and so it is contrasted to God who is good and completely spirit, which is therefore good. Body, good, body bad, God good. Salvation comes through the escape of the body. This achieved not through faith, but from special knowledge. So we have to completely escape our flesh. Now that stands completely in opposition to Romans 7. Now, grantly, they, they didn't have Romans 7 probably at that time, but we know that that's not the case. They denied Christ's humanity in two ways. Some said that he only seemed to have a mortal body, that's called docetism. And two others said that the divine Christ joined his body at baptism and left before he died. I can't pronounce what that's called. Uh, uh, th this view is the background of much of 1 John chapters 1, 2, and 4. And since the body is considered evil, it was to be treated harshly. And this is discussed in Colossians 2, 21 and 22. And this automatically led to licentiousness, which is being sexually unrestrained, liberal, lewd, unrestrained by law or general morality, lawless, immoral, going beyond customary bounds or disregarding rules. Um, we could talk at length about living in a society that believes that knowledge and science is king, can't we? And frankly, we like to think that this is new. We live in a society that we are constantly shocked by, but we still have not even nearly approached what was going on in Corinth in the first century. We're not even in the neighborhood, not even in the postal zone. We're in a very new place for us as a nation, but not historically, globally. Okay, I think we're ready to go. Let's go ahead and open our text to 1 John. Um, let's go ahead, because 1 John is short, 1 John chapter 1 is short, let's go ahead and read it in its entirety. I'll go ahead and read it. I'll step up the mic. See, if I put this big thing on here, then my music stand sinks. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may too have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Praise the Lord. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In verses 1, 1 through 3, John is making a proclamation. We talked about this several weeks ago. What's the, what's the importance of this? His testimony. He's saying, hey, this is not some game of telephone I played when I was in kindergarten. I was there. I saw it. This happened. I was there. And that's really important. And it's really important to our testimony, too, that so often we forget that the experience that God has given us is a critical part in living out our life and sharing the gospel with others. One of the things that anybody who opposes the gospel cannot deny is your experience. They cannot, I can talk to somebody about the resurrection, I can talk to them about the atonement, about propitiation, about theology, take them all the way through the Roman road, and they go, I don't believe any of that is true. And they, they absolutely can. But they cannot say to me, when I say I was once dead but now I'm alive, and this is how I was dead, and this is how I am alive. They can't deny that. Or for people who have been saved or have been Christians most of their life, they you can talk about how God has protected you and led you and fulfilled your calling. It is a powerful, powerful tool. I've led a couple of mission teams, and one of the things that we insist on is a three-minute testimony. If you're gonna share the faith with somebody, you should have your three-minute story perfected as why Christ is the center of your life. Uh, fortunately, I have several. So that supremacy of Jesus, and my favorite passage of, uh, of this importance of the proclamation is in 2 Peter verse, chapter 1, verse 16. And he says this, For we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter, close, close friend and companion of John, is saying the exact same thing that John is saying in 1-1. We were there, we saw this, this is not fake. One of my favorite apologetics is, is there were over 400 witnesses in Jerusalem who saw the resurrected Christ. There is not a single document in, intact, in antiquity, not one, that denies the resurrection of Christ. Not one. There's not one reliable document. You would think Josephus or somebody along the line of the ancient historians would have said, yeah, that never happened. But it's not there. And the resurrection is the hinge pin. That changes everything. So John proclaimed that he was testifying. In verse 5, we're going to get into it here. In verse 5, it says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. When you imagine this, what are some of the things that you think of? Holiness. Okay. Perfection. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. There's a reason why we see in Scripture it says nobody can look upon God and live. Anything else? I'm sorry? All things are open and naked. Everything is open and naked. Actually, we're going to go to my probably my one of my favorite passages of Scripture to cover that. Let's uh, do some cross-references. Let's go to John 12, 35 and 36. 
Who's got that? Okay, thank you, Simone. And then we need John 3:19 and 21. Okay, Blake, you've got that. 2 Corinthians 6:14. Deb, you've got 6:14. I will call on you. And then Ephesians 5:8. Okay, Simone, go ahead. If you're walking in the dark, what? You have no idea where you're going. Anybody try to walk around the house in the darkness? Oh, I don't need that light. And then a broken toe later, you're thinking, you know, gosh, I probably should have turned the light on. John 3, 19 and 21. Now, this follows one of the most famous passages of Scripture, right? John 3, 16 and 17, right? Do you want 20 as well? Uh, 3, 19 through 21. Okay, all right. Uh, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light that does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Last part of that. Give me 21 again, please. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Comes to the light. Comes to the light. What about walking in darkness? We talked about briefly about what, what, what Jesus calls walking the light. What is walking in darkness? Walking outside of the light. <laughs> <laughs> That's relatively obvious. Thank you for that, Johnny. Walking away from God? Uh, absolutely. Walking in sin, making willful choices. We'll talk about that later if we get to it and how that affects things. Um, it says very clearly that if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie. We lie. We are liars. And now this is not to say that when we sin, we're automatically cast into darkness. That's not the point. But it's when we make that choice to walk in that direction, and we find ourselves fumbling about. A word That's my beautiful wife, by the way. That's Deb. Um, anybody ever been in total and complete darkness? I was in a cave one time. I was in my 20s, and we went into this cave outside of Bourne, California, and we went way back in there, and we turned off our flashlights. You could literally put your finger on your eyelash, and you couldn't even see the outline of your finger. We all lasted about 10, 12 minutes. It felt like forever. That is a great analogy of what it's like to be separated from God. You're helpless, you're hopeless, you have nothing. You, you can't even function. Okay, so our next one, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Does that mean? Yep. Do not be 
equally yoked. Is that correct? Yes. And unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Yep. What fellowship, what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship with light with darkness? And I have this note here in my note uh, to sum up this part here is, when does the burglar come? It comes when it's dark. And uh, it's not in my notes here, but Peter says, what? Be cautious for your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion looking for whom he might devour. Yep. So walking in the light is the opposite of darkness. We've established what darkness is. I've got one more there. Did I have one more? Ephesians 5.8. Did somebody get that? Okay, go ahead. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Walk as children of the light. Walking in the light. What does that mean? Go ahead. Relying on him daily, right? Relying on me because without him, we can't walk in the light. It's not in our bodily character to follow God. We have to rely on his spirit. That's excellent. What else? We don't make a practice of sinning. Don't make a practice of sinning. It's in chapter 3. talks about that. Go ahead. Uh, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Makes, <laughs> makes it a practice, right? Makes it a practice. Like, ah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. You know, the Gnostics were saying, ah, it'll be fine. It's just your body. Just your body. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine, right? Walking in the spirit, uh, I, my notes here, following God's call in your life. Every single one of us in this room has a calling. And it's our responsibility as people who profess to follow Christ to passionately pursue that calling. And B, not expect others to always be called to the same thing as you are. And allow that frustration to creep into you as to why can't I get help? Why won't people serve with me? Why won't people do this? Why won't people do that? Understanding that we're all called to different things, right? Same body, many parts passionately pursuing, and then I added this last night, reckless abandon. You know, it's interesting to me that we live in a society that is obsessed with safety. I've been in the construction industry for 30 years, and I honestly believe that most of the changes that we've made all the way to this point have been excellent. Our injuries have gone way, way, way down. I mean, back in the day when I was first got into the trade, it was not unusual to three out of five guys in the lunch trailer have missing digits, right? That's not the case anymore. Um, but we are obsessed by safety. And I don't see anywhere in the scripture where it says, the Lord your God is one God, play it safe. What does it say? Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Right? They can take your body, but they can't take your life. But yet our flesh, I know for me, and I'm a little bit more reckless than most people, but for me, my, my flesh craves comfort and familiarity. I, I learned that the first year I was on the road. When I was alone after work every day, I want to be with my people. I want to be with my things. I want to be with my wife. I, all of those things. And God says, what, am I not enough? I've got you here for a purpose. And I was able to turn that and have an opportunity to share the gospel pretty, pretty well. Um, Describe walking in the light, obedient, resolute, not easily swayed, sober-minded, committed, committed, and not loving myself above others, right? Philippians 
Two. Yeah, right? Do not, what is it? Uh, come on, Parnum. Oh, I don't remember. But anyway, some quick verses here in uh, 2 Samuel 22 through 29. You, O Lord, are my lamp. The Lord turns my darkness into light. Who's the lamp? God is. Not in ourselves, right? Isaiah 50:10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the Lord and rely on their God. Ephesians 5:8. We shared that earlier. At one time you were in darkness, but now you're in the light. Walk as children of the light. Psalm 13:3. This is one of my favorites. Look on me and answer, O Lord my God, and give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I could go on and on. Uh, John 3:21. this is the words of the Savior. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And then, I got to do it. I, can you grab Isaiah 6, uh, 1 through 5 or 1, 6? To me, this is the greatest description of understanding who we are, who God is, and how it is reconciled. Isaiah 6, 1 through 6? Yeah. Okay. All the way through... The coal, right? Take the coal, cleanse my, cleanse my lips, all that stuff. I'll start reading some of the stuff. Okay. Okay. Uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw that the, the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Continue. And the foundations of the thresholds shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sins are atoned for. And then it says, The loud voice says from heaven, Whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, Here am I, Lord. Send me. In that illustration, we see when we stand in the presence of the light and when we stand in the presence of God, what's the first thing that we see? Woe is me. I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Now, that's not to say that we're not the jewel of God's creation because we most certainly are. But in that moment, Isaiah realized who he was. And then what happened? God rectified the problem. The seraphim, under the command of the Holy Spirit, flew to the fire, grabbed the, grabbed the coal, flew over, cleansed Isaiah's lips, and says, Behold, you have been made clean. When we walk in the light, we understand who he is, first and foremost, the character and nature of this perfect deity. 
then we understand who we are. His jewel of creation, but hopelessly broken and unable to carry out his commands. And then God steps into our life, cleanses us, makes us worthy to be in that throne room. In Hebrews, it says, let us therefore enter the throne room of grace with confidence, not because of anything that we've done. So walking in the light to me and what I see theologically is understanding who he is first and foremost. Secondly, understanding who we are. Thirdly, coming to him and accepting his grace and forgiveness. And then lastly, stepping out and living out the calling. That's what it means to me, and I believe theologically it holds it out, that that is what it means to walk in the light. In verse 7, John directly connects walking in the light with the fellowship of believers. So could somebody read that for me? I don't have enough. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. John is directly connecting our love for Christ to what? Our love for His people. And I think so much we forget in our desire to do outreach that we forget about the people who are here that are in the family of God. And we have a tendency to allow factions and jealousy and anger and whatever it is to affect how we're going, how we're working out one another. Um, the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, I'm sure most of us have heard this. It emphasizes the closeness of people experiencing by sharing something in common and by extension, communing, sharing, giving as the outcome of that relationship. How does walking in the light or not walking in the light affect our relationship to the church? How does walking in the light or not walking in the light affect our relationships in the church? I have the cross references. Hebrews 9.14, Revelation 1.5, 2 Timothy 2.22 through 24. Who's got Hebrews 9.14? Oh, it's going to be a long, we've got a half hour left. Hebrews 9.14. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciousness from sinful deeds so that we can worship and worship the living God, for by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ has offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. 9.14? Huh. I must have the wrong text here in my notes. Yeah, Hebrews 9.14, what I have is, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Purge your conscience. I had this in even in my notes. How often do we struggle with forgiving ourselves and allow that to affect how we live out our calling? Uh, Spurgeon actually compares the inability to forgive yourself as idolatry. Why? You're putting yourself above God. We read it right here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? Yet we beat ourselves up 
we listen to the voice of the evil one, you're not good enough, you don't deserve, you can't share the gospel with this person, you can't do this, you can't do that, because look at your life. It says here, purge your conscience. How do we purge our conscience? We forgives us of our sins. 2 Timothy 2.22-24, through 24, it says, Flee the youthful, youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord. Fellowship, right? Do it together from a pure heart, having not anything to do with foolish and ignorant controversies, and you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. As Americans, we are awful at this. We are awful. I know I am. And if I look at our culture and I look at social media, one of my favorite uh, memes I've ever seen was, you step into 1956 with your smartphone and you say, in my pocket I have all the technology that has access to nearly all the information from beginning to the end of history and I use it to look at pictures of cat and argue, look at pictures of cats and argue with strangers, right? Not quarrelsome, having nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels, and we can we can jump over into Ephesians four where it says, "Do everything in the spirit of unity and the bond of peace," right? So sin is a huge player in how we look at one another and how we relate to one another. And then the last one I'll read here is Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if, the Lord, and if one has a complaint against the other, forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you so that you must also forgive and above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, <clears throat> to which you, which you indeed were called, in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. How does walking in the light affect how we function in the fellowship of believers. It's everything. Church unity, church brokenness, church being on mission, church being off mission, detractors. Um, <clears throat> I shared this, I think, when we were together. I went to a church up in Bellevue when we were on the road. Um, Pastor is Jeff Vanderstelt, big church. He addressed us as family, never called us church. He just said, hey, family. And he was talking about one of the things that happens when somebody comes to me and says, hey, what I don't like about Doxa is, he would always stop them and say, no, no, no. What you mean is what you don't like about us is. If you're a member here and you don't like it, this is your family, so you need to say what I don't like about us. Jeff was really good. And what was amazing is you would think that he had nine people in his church. We started going in October, there was about 250, and then two and a half years later, there were over 1,000 because they lived it out. Sin is the destroyer of fellowship. Fellowship with God, first and foremost, and fellowship with one another. Sin disrupts fellowship and destroys joy. When we live the lie and pretend that everything is just fine, we cannot live in true intimacy. 
It is all based on falsehoods and a facade. It's hard stuff, I know. And great theologian, British theologian, his name's Oz Guinness. And uh, I use this quote quite a bit now. Without truth, there is only manipulation. Verses 8, 9, and 10. We're going to go ahead and read that. We're probably going to spend the rest of our time there because it's a big one. Wow. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar in his words. His word is not in us. Those are a narrative of self-examination and redemption. The nature of God determines the conditions of fellowship with Him. One of the things we love to do as humans is set our conditions with God. Maybe I'm the only one that does that. I catch myself thinking about myself, thinking about, well, if so-and-so does this, then I'll do that, rather than just walking the light and living out what Christ has called me to do. That He's the one who decides who, what, when, where, and why. To deny his sovereignty in our lives is idolatry. And I'm as guilty as I'm sure anybody else in this room is, that we get caught up in our conditions. My, uh, my throat in the fire uh, was... Uh, place I didn't plan on going, but um, Deb and I have... Hopefully I, hopefully I brought up the 
Well, you took me a place. Here, let me clarify. You took me a place emotionally that I wasn't necessarily prepared to go. Um, I think about a lot of my brothers and sisters that I know have chosen to step outside of fellowship. Some of them I'm very, very close to. Very, very close to. You literally do not know what's coming into your life. And when Noah got diagnosed, we were in a small group um, with Doxa. Um, most of the people in our small group were our kids' age. They didn't just step in, they rushed in. They didn't say, what can we do? They just did. Every time we turned around, there was something. I could not imagine not being in fellowship and then showing up in church one day in a room full of strangers trying to explain that my grandson's gonna die. And then walking it out in faith, like Deb talked about. She was amazing. My wife, I, I should write a book about how amazing this woman is. Um, the fellowship and Iglesia, the church, God holds in high esteem. That is why we are called his bride. The context here is not merely committing sin. To have sin means more than just committing it. It refers to the inner principle of which the outward manifestations is going on on the outside. We deceive ourselves, right? We deceive ourselves when we say that we have no sin, but I can assure you that we are not deceiving anybody else. It's much better to confess our sins one to another, step into forgiveness and walk through it. In Proverbs, the 20th uh, chapter, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from sin? Who can say that? No one can say that. No one can say that. Nobody can say that, exactly. The idea of saying I have no sin is saying there's no, there's no need for salvation. That's correct. I have, I have no, there's no sin nature in me. That's correct. Right. Right. And I think that the mind of the flesh calls us back to our old self and, and creates that self-righteousness in us at times. Oh, that's not on me. It's not on you. One of the things I've learned as I've gotten older is that perception is reality for people. And if they perceive that I've wronged them, even if I feel as though I haven't, I have to deal with that perception. If I truly love that brother and sister in Christ, right? If I truly love them, and I don't feel as though I've done anything wrong, but they perceive that I have, it's up to me to step up to the plate and make that right. That's the Lord's command, is it not? Perception is reality for people. And if we're truly gonna love people, we have to understand that, or at least I do. In Jeremiah, the second chapter, it says, I, You say I am innocent, and surely his anger has turned from me. But behold, I will bring judgment for you saying, I have not sinned. In Romans 3, chapter 9 through 19, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged them all. Jews and Greeks are under, as written, no one is righteous, no, not one. And no one seeks God. And all have turned aside. And it goes on quite a bit. We have to understand that we have to deal with our sin first if we're going to step into the fellowship and into the communion with His people and therefore with Him. 
It's all on him. Everybody should know Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have to deal with that if we're going to walk in the light and the precious gift that he has given us, the church. And then my favorite on this subject is in Matthew 15. The setting is the Pharisees are calling Jesus out for not doing ceremonial washing before they consumed. He said, don't you know I'd make you unclean? He says, hear and understand. It is not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of your mouth that defiles a person. And then the disciples said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And he said, you know, every plant my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, for they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, then both of them will fall into a pit. And Peter said to him, explain it to us. And Jesus said, don't you see that whatever goes into, a man, into your mouth, passes into the stomach, isn't expelled. But what comes out of your mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. There's another passage, uh, I believe it's in Mark. He says, do you not know that the overflow of your heart is when your mouth speaks? When we claim that we haven't sinned, we claim that we're innocent, we're heading down that road of defiling ourselves and others. Boy, is church over already? Yeah. I want to end on the positive. Oh, man, see, that's not positive either. Well, we'll, we'll close in this, that I honestly believe, for me, that as we look into 1 John and that last verse in chapter 8, that walking in the light literally means walking in a life of repentance, dealing with our own repentance before looking out onto the world. We know the world is sinful and broken. Do we know that we're sinful and broken? And are we stepping into the light, allowing God to expose that so that we can be greater used by Him, both in the church and in the world? Thanks, guys. I'd pray, but I'd do it over everybody else. <laughs>